Happy holidays and welcome to the World on Fire podcast. I am your host as always, Nick Schweitzer. So obviously sound a little bit different. I'm a little under the weather, fighting off a cold. Luckily, I'm in a good spot today. My voice is just a little hampered thanks to some coughing. Um, and, and before we get into today's episode, I just want to give a bit of background in regard to the information that we're all going to hear today. So in researching the Great Patriotic War, uh, it is incredibly intricate and difficult, especially if you're an American like myself, uh, who cannot transcribe Russian text like myself. A large majority of what we know today in regard to the history of what happened on the Eastern Front in World War II comes from things such as memoirs or written accounts from these leaders. It always leaves an incredibly large question mark about what is the complete truth or what has been altered as a motive to survive. The case in point behind this is the political environment after the war. Um, it's, it's tumultuous and these military and civilian it wasn't just the military and civilian leaders uh, were doing whatever they could um, to place them in the best possible light. Uh, Zhukov's, uh, Zhukov's memoirs are uh, fantastic to read. If you have not, I highly, highly suggest it. However, they are his writings and ultimately they're his account. No matter what we are attempting to cover, which is a ton of information today, there are a lot of estimates, a lot of maybes, and a lot of uncertainties in this episode. I am also going to give an apology up front, uh, as I am aware that I have butchered names of people and cities in the Soviet Union. Uh, I will certainly make sure that I make a better attempt in this episode. Uh, I also wanted to uh, give a real quick shout out and a thank you to uh, Professor Dr. Don uh, Bond from Arizona State University uh, for taking time uh, to really just help filter, help me filter through the information, help explain it to me, help give me a better understanding. Uh, while he was not directly involved in the research for this, he was a massive uh, component and a mentor for me in this episode, especially uh, expanding my horizons uh, within, that is in, within the Eastern Front. Dr. Mon is a uh, distinguished professor. He's done academic book reviews, articles, journals in regards to the history of the Great Patriotic War. Uh, I consider him uh, very much an expert in this situation. Um, so, uh, and on top of the, so obviously to him, thank you. On top of that, I have lied to all of you. There will be 100% a third part in this series uh, on Zhukov and his post-war life. Uh, so much takes place during the four years of the war with Nazi Germany that it's seriously a disservice to the guy to say, okay, well, we've got 15 minutes left in the episode. Let's cram uh, the remainder of his life. I feel like that's uh, unfair to history. It's unfair to him, and it's unfair to all of you as the listeners. Uh, so we're going to do a third episode on this. Um, so with that, welcome to the second part in our history on Zhukov 
in his fight against Nazi Germany. Right, so just as a brief refresher um, from earlier, right, we are now at the awakening of Operation Barbarossa, and Nazi Germany has broken the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact uh, by invading the Soviet Union on June 22nd, 1941. And it is at this point in time that General Georgi uh, Dukov is the chief of the general staff of the Red Army, right? So he is... Yeah, a good way to think about it. He is in charge of all the ground forces. Um, and so Stalin places this responsibility of the immediate defense of the Soviet Union on Zhukov and many other commanders spread throughout the Red Army. So while Zhukov was widely intelligent and a rising star when it comes to operational capabilities, there is one thing that Zhukov and the Red Army had at the time that no other general or really any other nation had, manpower. At the time of the German invasion, it is estimated that the Red Army had roughly 5 million troops ready within its ranks were prepared to fight. So it's a, um, it is immediately after the Soviet Union that uh, Zhukov is forced to respond. He, there's some discussion around whether or not he was forced to sign a directive, which immediately goes into uh, a counteroffensive against the Germans. There's a lot of discussion. Was he forced? Did he do it? The fact of the matter is, is the Soviet Union immediately went on to the counteroffensive. And this is this is kind of interesting because it was actually based off of pre-war preparation, uh, which uh, we should, I, we're going to get to that in a little bit. Uh, but the best way to think about it is before all of this, Zhukov and a few other commanders had possibly written up the idea that they would launch a summer offensive against the Germans uh, starting in Poland, pushing into Germany, just because there were heightened tensions that there was a reality that the Nazis were going to launch an attack on the Soviet Union. There's an argument whether or not Stalin saw these, whatever. We're going to get to that. However, this directive of the counteroffensive is based off of a pre-war strike, if you will. So all <laughs> the plan's not going to work how you want it to. So now that this whole war has opened up, the limelight is now at this point completely taken away from Joseph Stalin, and it's placed on his commanders. This is weird, right? It's the war. It's the nation's leader. Um, why would the why would the light be taken off of him? Uh, you know, we think about us in the United States, FDR, fireside chats, blah, blah, blah. We got Winston Churchill on BBC talking. You know, we discuss all these world leaders who were actively um, in, they were the face of the nation. Joseph Stalin kind of drew himself back a bit. Um, and the, the media, if you will, redirected their attention. We're going to get to that. So, right. So while it's ultimately Joseph Stalin's job 
to protect the Soviet Union, like I said, as their leader, Stalin would not be the one to take any blame, nor would he be the one to face negativity for actions of his military if it resulted in failure. It wasn't his fault, right? That was how he was coming into this. So, and as we recalled in the previous episode, right, Stalin isn't the most trusting individual in history. Um, as we learned through the purges, anyone that he deemed a threat, whether they were a serious threat or a hypothetical threat, they were a threat. So he's he's very cautious around who he is with and who he is speaking with or how he is wording things. Um, and, and some of his, uh, in some of the memoirs that we've read, um, it's quite eye opening to hear how he was during meetings. He was very uh, redirective, and we're going to get into that a little bit more. I'm kind of getting off track here a little bit. Um, And it is this kind of like distrust that drives a wedge between Stalin and Zhukov. So while Zhukov would not be a man to sit down and take blame for either for something that he would be forced to do right, this was something that through research, we see that Stalin's just a deflectionist. And that's an interesting spin to put on it, especially during the Great Patriotic War. And that's my words. I'm not saying, you know, he appears to be a deflectionist. His commanders of the military are the ones who ultimately make the choice. Uh, if Zhukov says he likes the plan, then let's go with it. Right? We're, we're going to go with that plan. Jukov's plan is Jukov's plan. That way, if it fails, we know exactly who to blame. So in late July of 1941, Jukov, uh, using a general's mindset, right, uh, is fearful of the Germans completely encircling his forces at Kiev. Uh, he would then meet with Stalin to discuss the retreat of those forces in order to create a more of a prepared defense within the heart of the Soviet Union. That conversation gets Zhukov sacked, right? Uh, gets him fired as uh, chief of the general staff and of the Red Army, and he is sent uh, to be the commander of the reserve front, right? So, but, okay, Nick, well, why did he get sacked? Well, Stalin always wanted to keep the pressure on the Germans. We have to understand this. We have to understand that. Did Hitler serve in the military? He sure did. He was a corporal, though. Stalin served in military leadership positions during the Russian Civil War, right? He's got more experience. He at least, in a way, knows what he's talking about. And I think that is important. For him, in his mindset of what he knows from fighting, it's keep the pressure on. Take the pressure off what happens. Uh, the Germans, if you pull back, the Germans are going to take that way. And that was Stalin's argument. Uh, however. Uh, this doesn't make sense, right? Because, Nick, well, you said that if his general said you're right, if another general says, well, I think we should stay and fight in Kiev, he would then take that commander's voice into consideration. In this situation, one of those men would be General Semyon Budyani, uh, who would be one of the people who took the, the bash of the failure at Kiev. 
It allows Stalin to continue to do what he ultimately wants, but forces someone to become, in a sense, the fall guy. So, as 1941 ticks on, the Germans push further and further into the Soviet Union, inching closer to their goal of Moscow. However, now in charge of the reserve front, Dukov would begin to give the Red Army tactical victories across that front. So, in late August, Dukov would prepare a counteroffensive of uh, Smolensk, uh, which had been lost in the initial invasion. Uh, as the German 4th Army hunkered down in the city, over 100,000 Soviet troops would launch their assault on, uh, I'm going to butcher this word, Yelnya, I believe is the name of the city. Uh, anyway, they would, uh, they would assault across it by maneuvering in a pincer to squeeze the German forces together, right? So a pincer is, think of a lobster claw, right? Inch, right? Your, your main uh, your main hot points are the sides, it's not the front. So they're squeezing the German forces together, and by doing that, the Germans were unable to protect their flanks any further and would be forced to withdraw on the 8th of September. Two days following his victory at Smolensk, uh, Zhukov is once again moved and is to be the commander of ground forces during the siege of Leningrad. And I thought about growing into some great depth here about the Battle uh, of Leningrad and the Siege of Leningrad. However, to touch on a few reasons of why this city is important. Uh, number one, it's the name of the city, right? It holds the name of their founding leader. Number two is the city is populated with roughly 3.5 million civilians. Uh, even in modern times, that's a pretty large population for a city. Now, I understand there's cities that have much more. I'm just saying, right, um, you know, the, the biggest city in the state that I live in here in the U.S. does not have uh, 3.5. Uh, so by time the fighting begins within Leningrad, the Soviets are not only faced with the quarter of a million attackers, but they still have about a million civilians in the city that they would need to get out. The issue here is that in the defense of Leningrad and ultimately Moscow was that Soviet commanders were moving their troops in blocks, right? So they're moving them kind of clunky, they're, they're, move, they're rotating as a whole, uh, focusing solely on frontal assaults. Uh, and and incredibly focused concentration, right? Like very pinpoint. And this creates what we know is a fatal funnel uh, for the entirety of the assault force. Uh, while the Soviets had the manpower, they, however, could not just needlessly throw their men as they were uh, at directly into German bullets. Not the way to win a war. I, you can fight a war that way, but you will lose a war that way. And the Soviets are figuring this out um, because we need to understand that still at this point, the Soviet Union is fairly young. And okay, well, then so are the Nazis. The Nazis are younger. You're right, but they were built out of different things. The Nazis were built knowing they were going on a war. Soviet Union, not so much. So when it comes to the military strength and the military uh, capabilities, it's a little bit different. 
it is at this point in October of 1941 that Jukov is, uh, again, we're going to say quote-unquote promoted to not only lead the reserve front, but also becomes uh, one of the Red Army representatives at Stavka, uh, which is a acronym. Not 100% for sure what it stands for. However, uh, it's, it's their headquarters. It's a great way to think about it. Uh, Jukov would thus combine their capabilities together in order to manage and lead the defense of the Western Front. So now, right, like we have the Western Front for the Soviets. Uh, for the, It's the Western Front for the Soviets. I'm going to get grilled on that. I'm aware. But in the Great Patriotic War, it's the Western Front. Uh, they're now, their main goal is simply it's the defense of the Soviet units, the defense of the motherland, right? What this means is that Jukov and Stavka reserves, he could call on them at any time. And if his frontline troops began to slip and fall and blunder and they were bleeding badly and they needed help, Jukov had the Stavka reserves. I'm not saying that he had unlimited resources and manpower, but comparative to some of what other commanders had, he had quite a bit he could pull from. Moscow, and moreover, the Kremlin is the target for the Nazis. Uh, they believe that if they can capture Moscow, uh, the remainder of the communist state will fall, right? So regardless if this is exactly what would have happened, it is neither here nor there uh, because the Nazis are unable to secure the city. This brings in a very interesting tidbit on how Zhukov led during the Great Patriotic War, right? So Stalin was a man of large superstition, as we've already covered, uh, and in many ways didn't trust anyone. This would play a huge factor in decision-making on the battlefield, as Stalin was so scrutinous that he refused, refused his commanders including Zhukov, from writing anything down during a conference over the Moscow counteroffensive. Commanders like Zhukov and Alexander Vasilevsky, uh, who would aid each other later in the defenses of major battles, would be forced to simply remember what was being said and then do their best to replicate those orders and personal diaries that were hidden away. Those uh, diaries were burnt later so great so it's hard to say if that played a role in Jukov's battlefield motives but it certainly makes sense if there are more and less on their own when it comes to what Stalin wants right they're playing the telephone game with themselves could you imagine sitting in a meeting at work for I don't know four hours and it's like one of the most important things you've ever done at work. And your boss says, you can't write any of this down. What? It's like they had recordings, right? Right. They, they didn't have, you know, they didn't video record these meetings, their conferences. It was, you just better remember it. So by time Zhukov is in Moscow, the Western Front, once again, the Soviet, the Great Patriotic Wars Western Front, is exerted beyond what he could have thought. While winter had arrived and would prove to be uh, helpful 
ally. We're going to get into that in a minute. A helpful ally to the Soviets in the winter of 1941. Uh, high counteroffensives at Moscow were just simply too much. And on the 9th, he would issue a directive telling his commanders that they were to cease these frontal assaults at once. And if they were to attack, they would need to maneuver and fight from a flank. Pretty smart. I mean, come on now, right? Uh, and and while, while this seems like a poor maneuver, because we remember uh, the Fairmock is utilizing an incredible speed in battle, uh, what we as Americans coined, uh, and or American and British coined Blitzkrieg, um, basically right it's they're they're at 100 110% at all times there's no breaks it's all gas uh and they're utilizing recognized warfare it's it's uh, it's an innovation into modern warfare uh, however winter remember winter has almost completely halted the nazis advance as they get closer to moscow so instead, the weather gives Zhukov an advantage his commanders need uh, to make this sweeping maneuver work, right? It's at this point, it's cold, nothing's working. Right? It's not, everyone, yes, there is three feet of snow, absolutely. Uh, yes, there is, the main thing is the cold, the cold is causing guns to freeze up. The, the grease is no longer doing its job effectively. Diesel is not starting. It, it's just everything's bogged down, right? So, And that is thanks to the cold. Now, however, um, there are a lot of people who say, um, well, Nick... Is it really the winter? The winter helped both sides in a sense. We're going to get into that later. However, just know that the winter played a part. The cold played a part. The cold played a part. And the Battle of Moscow would last from September of 1941 until January of 1942. So, I mean, you're basically hitting fall and winter. Uh, so, with Moscow being one of the main objectives for the Wehrmacht, without them securing it, it would mark the end of the operation. Operation Barbarossa was a failure to the German military. However, Hitler would blame the early winter uh, for their defeat in the Soviet Union. It's a lie. That is a lie. Uh, that was what? Not why, and we're going to find out later. It's imperative to understand now that during this time, the Imperial Japanese had not only attacked the United States, but Germany declared war on the U.S., right? So with that being said, the Soviets knew that the Americans would be coming to Europe to open up a second front, but it was more of a question of when. Stalin and the Soviets at this point, while have beaten back the Germans away from Moscow, they're really in a vulnerable position and, and totally in uncharted territory. Heading into 1942, the German offensive has collapsed, and they have not taken their goal. Moscow, right? On top of that, Zhukov is beginning to slowly place his men into positions across the Western Front in order to take the fight back 
to the Germans. So up until this point, right, I've only touched on how Zhukov was a man who knew uh, the manpower that he had, right? We uh, He had his cavalry expertise. He's very good with armor, manpower, right? We all think this guy's going to win the war. Uh, we're, and with that, we're going to talk about uh, some of the counteroffenses he would make after the Battle of Moscow that would, in a way, sort of form this ruthless and legendary command style. He knew that he had the manpower to beat the Germans. Even as under-equipped as some of the Soviet Union uh, units were, he knew that he had more blood to give. And in reality, that's one of the biggest resources. The battles of uh, Rechev would prove to not only be costly to both sides of the war, but for almost an entire year that these battles would rage around the city, the Soviets would continue to throw division after division at the Germans in order to break their hold. Uh, we tend to hear that this battle and uh, grossly most of what we know as the Eastern Front to be a total meat grinder. And this was the reputation that Zhukov was beginning to gain, right? Uh, why so? Well, it, it's truly as simple, right? If we think about it, the Soviet Union did not have the materials um, compared to their German counterparts for their troops. They were simply just under-equipped. They had the men to outweigh the effectiveness of armament, which is kind of interesting. Uh, overwhelm your enemy by sheer number and power, and you have overwhelmed your enemy by force, just as if you would have with guns and bombs. Uh, but by losing, by using this method, Zhukov needed to be comfortable with substantial losses. Almost all of 1942 would be Zhukov and the battles of uh, Rechev, which would be a culmination of many offenses and those counteroffenses northeast of uh, the Smolensk Oblast. Uh, and it's estimated that within these battles that played out over the course of this year, half a million Red Army soldiers would be dead and a literal millions would be wounded or captured. But for Army Group Center and the Wehrmacht, who was the target for Zhukov's offensive, would remain intact even after incredible losses as well, reaching close to 170,000 dead. They would succeed at driving them out of central Russia. So, Soviets are losing a lot, a lot more. It's lopsided. But they're getting their job done. So, as I stated before, it was in that year of 1942 that would change the outcome of the war for Nazi Germany. Uh, the Germans, uh, not only did they right, not meet their objective, they're getting slaughtered thanks to being cut off again by, let's say it, the Russian winner. So you're telling me, Nick, in 1941, they went through this Russian winter. They didn't learn. That's right. They did not learn. There's also something else that place, which was uh, quite interesting. And a lot of people say it's because of this winter that the, the winter is what won the No, the winter helped in a way. It's false. The entire world knows at this point that Russian winners can and will break an army. I'm going to call it Napoleon, but I am. 
Napoleon, right? Russian winners will break your army. But in reality, the early onset of winter gave the Germans kind of a slight advantage until the sub-zero temperatures kicked in. In the fall of 1942, what really, really helped in, in the fall of 1941 and 42, they both had immense, right? They had immense rain seasons in the fall. This is what slowed down the German army. What started it. Right? They're not on paved roads. They're not in an interstate. They're not cruising down the street. They're on dirt roads. They're using unconventional paths. These large, heavy steel machines, these tanks, troop carriers, all oh, they're getting stuck. Troops can't walk. They're literally walking out of their boots. Raining constantly. Everything's muddy. Guns are jammed. Nothing can fire. This is the moment that stops down the Germans. It's really not the winter, right? Like I said, the cold is what ends up being brutal to the Germans. These rains, right? It's not until winter, right? Until the ground kind of starts to refreeze, and then it helps the Germans back out, right? The Germans are be able to get moving again. It's sub-zero temps that arrive later that will give um, is is what we tend to give the credit to. Anyways, I'm not a weatherman. Now you know. It was the mud. Zhukov, uh, while under pressure from the Kremlin, is slowly beginning to push the Germans out of the Soviet Union. It's, it's, it's blood. Every inch is filled with blood. Uh, this is not an easy task for the Red Army, and Zhukov is aware. But with his successes, his brutality as a combat leader begins to truly show, right? And in late August of 1942, Joseph Stalin calls upon Zhukov again and names him the Deputy Commissar of Defense and the first Deputy Commander-in-Chief of the Soviet Armed Forces. So yet again, right, Zhukov is repositioned as the highest-ranking service member within the Red Army. Or a little bit right before that, right uh, in the summer of '42, I forgot to bring this up. Um, the Nazis launched Case Blue in order to divert their forces in order to take the southeast side of the Soviet Union, which is rich in resources such as oil. This is the Caucasus, right? Uh, and, and this this moment changes the war. It now changes to a war of attrition. It is clear that the Soviets were not going to be easily defeated as if they had fought. The Germans needed to play the long game and attempt to beat the Soviets by using time. Their first objective would to sustain their military prowess, and you can only do that if your military is moving functionally. So with this happening, the Soviet uh, be the Soviets begin preparing just with bulk manpower during this battle seeing it is during this seeing that taking the caucus region is not going anywhere a 
in and is not as fast as he had thought, Hitler makes the decision to split Army Group South and takes General Paulus of the German Sixth Army to push the Soviets back across the Volga River in Stalingrad. By doing so, the Germans make an incredibly fatal mistake in separating their armies so far away from each other that they simply cannot provide protection for each other. They can't be called upon. They're too far away. In August, not only does Palace make it to the Volga north of Stalingrad, but Zhukov moved to Stalingrad to head the ground defenses in the city. So we have two great commanders getting ready to fuck off. They're going to fight each other uh, in something that the Germans have really never done, which is room to room, building to building, factory to factory fighting. The Nazis don't really have a ton of experience in this. Soviets, however, a little bit more um, in tune with this. This is a great advantage for the Soviets. And it's really important to understand about Stalingrad, right? He gives the direct order that Stalingrad will not fall. The defense of the city was imperative to the survival of the Soviet people. Oh, now we know Jukov is going to trade land for blood, no matter what. It is during Stalingrad, his principles tended to be absolutely hammer the German attackers again and again, and that would allow him time to build his reserves. So while the Soviets are losing men at an astonishing rate within the city, the Germans are being worn down to the stone. We are talking thousands of people a day being killed in uh, Stalingrad. This, if you have ever read about Stalingrad, I highly suggest you do a massacre on both sides. It's the best way to put it is it was an absolute massacre. Um, incredibly bloody. It's, I would be willing to venture of it was the bloodiest battle of World War II. Uh, but I, I highly suggest you read into the whys and the hows of what happened happened with this right jukov's like oh man we gotta let the germans kind of hit back at us a little bit so he jukov allows the sixth army to overexert themselves and it places their offensive maneuvers into harm's way of carefully planned artillery and armored units within the city that would catch the germans off guard right the germans overexert themselves they're like oh we're doing good we're getting where we need to and it would be a trap over and over and over again as the battle waged on, these casualties just kept building and didn't slow down. And more men poured onto the battlefield. They, Germany and the Soviet Union were just dumping men into the city. And Zhukov needed a plan to just outright crush the 6th Army here in Stalingrad. So that is when Operation Uranus would be carefully planned and crafted with a hand-picked group of commanders selected by Zhukov. Dozens and dozens of Soviet troops, or divisions of Soviet troops, would be built up preparing for the encirclement of the German Sixth Army. And if successful, the Soviets could seriously be looking at the true beginning 
of pushing the Germans out of the Soviet Union. Right? This is like a, a sign to them that it's going to happen. Planned for the beginning of November, it would be moved by high command twice for air power reasons. And because it's an incredibly fragile situation, attempting to move such a force without alerting the enemy that you're preparing for an assault, right? These weren't the frontline troops that the Soviet unions were fighting in Stalingrad. These are huge pockets, different divisions being moved carefully throughout the city to prepare them for the Germans hindsight have no idea that these divisions are coming into play, right? This isn't what they know is on the battlefield. They're not moving the fighting force. They're moving in new divisions for a totally separate thing. And they want the Germans to have no idea that it's happening. Once finally launched, when they get to okay, right? And they launched on the on 19th of November, the bulk majority of the Romanian forces attached to the Wehrmacht's fighting force would crumble within 24 hours. Um, there were a few that would stay behind and be in the encirclement, but a, a fair amount of Romanian forces, and there's a few other um, uh, countries that would unfortunately, you know, face the same thing. The very next day, they would make contact with German forces, and the fighting would be miserable. By the 23rd, so we four days, right, Operated launched on the 19th, the 23rd, four days, the encirclement is complete. There is now 300,000 German troops, estimated, right? 300,000 German troops uh, trapped within the city. Of these 300,000, only 96,000 would be taken prisoner. And of this number, give her, uh, once again, estimated, uh, estimated uh, 6,000 would ever return. And this is really interesting about the encirclement. Uh, the Soviet Union has never been placed in a situation like this, right? It's uh, uncharted territory. They are surrounding a major army, the, the German Sixth Army, led by Friedrich Paulus. A big deal. Never done this. This is new to them. And the Soviet commanders have every right to be apprehensive. At the time of Stalingrad, the largest encirclement up to that point was roughly 100,000 German troops, and they were barely able to get it done. If they would have went to Joseph Stalin with the intelligence that they had 300,000 troops encircled, which they knew, uh, it would most likely would have pushed Stalin to just call off, as there was, in his mind, there would be, oh, you're right, no way that we could accomplish this. So they lied. <laughs> They, they took a risk and they lied and they told him it was only 100,000 again. So Stalin, you know, agreed with his commanders. Yeah, we should do this. The defense of Stalingrad becomes the turning point for the Soviet Union, right? So not only did they defend the city, but they also completely annihilated their enemy. Stalin bestows a great honor upon Zhukov due to his act in commanding the defense and Operation Uranus, into which he is promoted to the title of Marshal of the Soviet Union. Army Group Center is still alive, though, and it is still very much the target for Zhukov, even after his promotion. And it is as he gets closer to Germany and closer to destroying the enemy, the bloodier his tactics are getting. The sacrifice of the Soviet troops is an expendable number. 
But what is interesting is the soldiers under his command tend to have a higher morale and confidence. Why is that, you ask? Well, you remember how Jukov has the Stavka reserved that he can tap to at any time? His men know this, and they know that no matter what, someone will come for them if they need it. But Jukov and the Soviet commanders know that you must bleed in order to win. So by July of 1943, Soviets are attempting to press the Germans into the Ukraine and out of Soviet land in order to split German armies further. It is here at Kursk when Zhukov and Rokossovsky would single-handedly plan the offensive against the Germans at Kursk. However, Rokossovsky would later state that Zhukov really had no part in planning and did not show up until right before the battle commenced. Odd, right? Memoirs. That's why they're important. Uh, it is interesting. Uh, why this is kind of interesting is Rokosovsky, before the purges, was actually a higher-ranking officer than Zhukov, and they knew each other coming through the ranks. However, Rokosovsky would be caught in the purges and eventually called back to serve in the Red Army, right? He's caught up in the purges. He gets, you know, he goes away, comes back, asks to rejoin the Red Army. Here he is again. Yet when he returns, right, Zhukov is now a higher-ranking officer than he is. So we got to take it with a grain of salt that there might be some spite there. The Germans would beat Zhukov to the Punch, however, by launching Operation Citadel on July 5th, but to only stall and have the Soviets launch their Kursk strategic offensive operation, uh, which would be a multiple-layered attack made up of single separate operation. Right? They they a bunch of it was just multi-layered. It was a multi-op, you know, here's the big picture, here's each operation that's gonna get us to it. Now, initially, this was a very neck-and-neck fight, and it appeared that Zhukov would once again need to wage a war of attrition against the Germans to beat them at Kursk. So, right, what is Kursk, right? It is one of the largest armored battles of World War II, and as we remember about Zhukov, he loved and appreciated the roles of armor in battle. The Soviets had one of the greatest minds to lead one of the largest tank battles. Well, all of this is taking place, right? Anyone catch the date? Right? The Americans launched their invasion on Sicily, which truly helps solidify that the Soviets are going to win it. And so for uh, Zhukov and Rokoshovsky, this is great. Right. This is a fantastic victory for them, and it's huge for the Red Army. And so Hitler now has to start maneuvering troops. Or he has to create a balance. And this is because he knows that the, um, the West is coming too. Right? The Americans and the British are coming. By fall of 1943, Zhukov initiates his troop movement sweeping across the Ukraine all throughout the spring of 1943. Or, which is preparing his troops for the offensive in the Belarusian area. In spring of 1944, Zhukov and the Soviet Union uh, is planning how they're going to encircle the main elements of, you guessed it, Army Group Center, 
and finally crush Zhukov's enemy. With the impending and promised second open front by the Western Allied forces, Stalin knew that he had no time to waste once it was opened. Right, so we know the Americans, uh, the Canadians, and the British landed in France on June 6th. On June 22nd, ironic, on June 22nd, the Soviets launched their largest operation against the Nazis aimed at pushing them up against the wall in Poland. This is Operation Bagration. It's not Bagration. I've heard this a few times. Bagration is how it's spelled. It's Bagration. Anyway, well, what is what is this Operation Bagration? Uh, well, it's 1.6 million Soviet troops facing off against half a million Germans. After two months of fighting, rough numbers here, estimates, 28 of the 34 divisions of Army Group Center had been 100% destroyed. Leaving the Eastern Front in shambles with an army that could no longer hold its lines. This would be the largest military loss in German military history. The Nazis are now completely out of the Soviet Union, and the Soviets begin their march into Poland. By the 23rd of August 1944, Zhukov is now preparing the Belarusian front for their march to Berlin. Now, after Bagration, the Third Reich will in fact fail as Zhukov's men are approaching the German border. He reminds his men of the brutality and death their people have faced at the hands of the Germans. He has them remember the women and the children killed raped at the hands of these Germans. He tells them to not forget as they march westward. Now, this isn't like he's like speaking to them. These are coming down. So once again, do, do we know who said what, who told whom, right? He, it's not like he did a big Bob Hope type speech with rah, rah, troops. You know, these are being held, well, you know. So anyway, we're going we're gonna to go past that. Um, with that, the treatment of German civilians by the Soviets were brutal in many ways. Atrocities, rape, murders, horrific crimes. Uh, you name it, and the Soviets did it out of the sake of revenge against the against Germany. Did Zhukov cut the leash on uh, his men in Germany for them to do the same to the German people? Uh, probably not. You know, I don't really think any commander is going to, well, I'm not even going to go there. But I know I do not think that he uh, explicitly told them to go there. Regardless, uh, Zhukov was the people's hero in the Soviet Union. He orchestrated the Battle of Berlin uh, with Vasilevsky, uh, and would be one of the. And he would ultimately be the one uh, to accept the surrender of Nazi Germany. He. It was him. It was Zhukov who received the official surrender. So now what? Right, the war's over. Uh, it's the end. Well, uh, well, I thought we only cared about World War II, right? Uh, well, actually, no, we do. Uh, we do and we do not, right? So in our third part, we're going to discuss that political environment I had said in the beginning. 
uh, in the post-war Soviet Union, in the post-war Soviet Union, how this war played such a massive impact on the lives of the commanders such as Zhukov. And with the good, there is the bad. And we will find out why the death of Stalin would play a major role in the disfigurement of Zhukov's image. That's for another episode. Once again, as always, thank you all so much for coming back week after week, giving me feedback and helping us grow. Uh, this is something that I always look forward to. Uh, and as our listenership grows, I am shocked and in awe. Uh, seriously, thank you all. Uh, have a wonderful holiday, no matter what you celebrate. Make sure you connect with those that you love and just check in, right? We could all use company this time of the year. With that, right, make sure you all head over to the socials and follow us up by searching World on Fire Podcast. Leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen. And one last thing before I sign off. Might and Fury World War II is really hitting the ground come January. From the pieces I have seen from their team, this is going to be the one of the hands-down greatest teaching tools about World War II, period. If you grew up like me, loving the history behind games such as Axis and Allies and Risk, but you absolutely didn't love hanging out for nine hours and playing a game, uh, imagine the same thing, but much more condensed and manageable. Right? Go check their product out. It is a fantastic thing. Seriously. Go check it out. I know I will be buying more than one for our local schools in my area, and I will also be buying one for myself. Uh, what I find to be incredibly cool about it is that the figurines who are of all the world leaders during the war are just a gray finish. She's going to allow you to decorate your characters in any shape or form you would like. It's customizable. That's sweet. Anyway, their link is going to be in my show notes. Please go check them out. Once again, thank you all. Happy holidays. Enjoy and be safe. And I will really see you all next year. Ha! <laughs>